Romans chapter 9 this morning. Romans chapter 9. And we are going to read a bit of Scripture. So you grab your Bible and follow along. Romans chapter 9. Let's start in verse number 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written. 
Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Father God, thank you for this passage. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us now. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit and give me wisdom to preach. I pray, Father, that you'd protect me from saying anything I ought not, enable me to say anything I should. And I pray you'd open our hearts and minds to understand the truth that you have for us today. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have now finished up, finally, the first major section of Romans. Most people would divide the book of Romans into three major sections. Well, chapters 1 through 8 being the very first of those sections and the major one. In chapters 9 through 11, which we're looking at now, Paul is talking uh, primarily about the Jews. This passage of Scripture is, uh, is, is about the, the children of Israel primarily and how God has dealt with them and continues to deal with them throughout history. And that would be the second major division of the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11. The final division takes place in the final four, chapters 12 through 16. And there Paul makes practical application of all that he has said before. And I'm looking forward to getting to chapter 4 because that's where, the, or chapter 12, I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road. And that's where we learn what all this means to us and how we put this into practice in our lives. But first, we need to spend a little bit of time in chapters 9 through 11. And I have to tell you that these 90 verses in your Bible may be the most difficult to understand of all the verses in the Bible. I don't know if that's true. I know that some people think it, and as I've studied it this week, I have just about... Uh, is, there, is there bald spots on the top of my head? Yeah, I have just about tore my head out trying to get my mind around. Because this passage, especially chapter 9, talks about the topic of election. Election. And I don't want to delve very deeply into this matter of election and predestination, because I confess to you that it's a topic that I have a great difficulty getting my brain around. One commentator I consulted as I was studying this quipped that if you really try to understand election, you will lose your mind. And I tend to agree. Election is one of those topics. It's like the Trinity. Uh, we accept it, but we can never fully understand it. Not in this life. One day we will, but not now. It's a product of the infinite mind of our infinite God. And I don't know about you, but I have a finite mind. And it can't quite grasp all of that. So we do our best to understand it. And even more importantly, we believe it and we accept it because it's a truth that's clearly taught in our Bibles. So I want to share with you just a little bit, uh, kind of by way of introduction, about how I reconcile in my mind what the Bible teaches about election versus what the Bible teaches about our, our free will, which are two seemingly opposing doctrines to some. And here's the first thing that we have to recognize. Election is a reality. The Bible teaches election. God elects. In other words, He chooses some for salvation. This cannot be denied. It is plainly taught in Scripture. And uh, those who will be in heaven are going to be there because they were elected by God. Those who are in hell 
we're not. Now, I can't explain that. I can tell you that Romans 9 provides perhaps the strongest arguments found anywhere in Scripture to support that particular doctrine, and there are certainly others that you can look at. But right now, we just have to say this. Election is a reality. It exists. But here's the second thing. Believing is a requirement for the elect. And so free will is also a real truth of Scripture. Nobody gets to heaven without believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody. That is plainly taught in the Bible. In other words, the free will of the individual cannot be denied. Those who will be in heaven have believed, they have trusted, they have placed their faith in Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross, they have called upon him to save them, and those who are in hell have not. And here's the amazing thing. My Bible tells me anybody can believe and be saved. Revelation chapter 22, the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, uh, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. We're, we're going to get right in the middle of all this discussion of election. We're going to get down to chapter 10, probably next, next Lord's Day, and we're going to see chapter 10, verse 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so now, obviously, in, in our finite minds, we struggle to, to, make, uh, to reconcile those two seemingly opposing truths, don't we? And yet they're both plainly and clearly taught. In Scripture, they are taught as absolutes. How can they both be true? How can it be true that God elects and that free will is also a requirement? And I could say I can't answer that, and I'd be telling you the truth. I can't totally answer that. But I also have a better answer. How can they both be true? Because God says they're true. Because the Bible says they're true. And that really is the only answer that you and I need. It may not be intellectually satisfying to those of us who like to think these things through and cogitate over all the little details of that sort of a thing, but it is the only answer that we really need. Moses said, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So we have these two truths. And in my mind, I view them as two parallel paths. I like to think of them as, uh, picture them as a railroad track. You're standing on a railroad track and you're looking at it going off into the distance. Two parallel paths. Somewhere off in the, in the distance there, they seem to meet. Uh, but we don't know where and we don't know when. And right now, that's true of these two truths. Right now, they're parallel truths. They're both true. They're not contradicting. One, election is entirely under the control of God. One, Believing free will is entirely a requirement of you and I. And someday it will be clear how God brings those two parallel truths together. But for now, our response is we need to trust him in the matter of election. And we need to obey him in the matter of believing. That's the only way I can get my mind around this thing. Some people like to take the approach of saying, oh, wait a minute, now, if election is a truth in the Bible, then we don't need to worry about winning souls. We don't need to worry about preaching the gospel. We don't need to worry about witnessing because it's a waste of time if God has already elected some to salvation. But God told us to win souls. God told us to witness. God told us to preach the gospel. To not do so would be disobedience. To not do so would be sin. And here, in this passage, where we have what, what may be the strongest explanation of election uh, that we have in Scripture, Paul is plainly agonizing over and praying for people to be saved. So we trust him in the matter of election. That's his part. And we'll leave it to him. And we obey him in the matter of witnessing and believing. That's our part. And we need to tell everybody we can. And that's clearly what Paul is doing. 
in this passage of Scripture. Warren Wiersbe said, No one will deny that there are many mysteries connected with divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Nowhere does God ask us to choose between these two truths, because they both come from God and are a part of God's plan. They do not compete. They cooperate. The fact that we cannot fully understand how they work together does not deny the fact that they do. When a man asked Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled divine sovereignty and human responsibility, Spurgeon replied, quote, I never try to reconcile friends, unquote. So that's about as deep as I want to go in the matter of election. And uh, we, could, we could bury ourselves in chapter 9 trying to get our minds around that. But that's as far as we want to go. If you want to dig deeper on that topic, I can recommend some things for you to read and you can see me afterwards. But for right now, let's leave it there. And what I'd rather do as we look at chapters 9, 10, and 11 is to look at them and make some application. Yes, they're talking about the Jews. Yes, Paul is primarily talking about Israel in these three chapters. We have to understand that. But we can also apply this to ourselves and get some very good truth out of here that applies to us. And so let's think about what he's talking about here in chapter 9 in those first few verses I read in chapter 10. He's talking about his Jewish brothers, his Jewish kinsmen. And here's what he says about them. He says they had lots of opportunity. He says, number two, that opportunity had limits. He says, number three, they lost that opportunity. And then the final point I want us to see is his love for them. His love for them. So let's look at those three, maybe four points. First of all, look at verses four and five, and let's notice that they had lots of opportunity. He said they are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. By the way, if anybody ever tells you that the Bible never says Jesus is God, point them to that verse right there. I don't know how they get away from that one. Christ, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Well, Paul was, of course, a Jew. And here we see him agonizing over the fact that in spite of all this glorious truth he's been talking about in the first eight chapters of this book, his brothers and sisters, for the most part, remain lost. His kinsmen, for the most part, have rejected it. As a group, they have not turned to Christ, but rather they have rejected him. If you think about Paul's amazement and the awe with which he concluded chapter 8, and what a high point it was. And then you look at his sorrow and his despair here as he turns his attention to them in chapter 9. It's as if he's thinking, in light of all Christ has done for us in the gospel, how can they not accept? How can they not believe? How can they not receive the gift of salvation? You see, these people had been given every opportunity to respond. They were Israelites. They were part of a group of people specially chosen by God, adopted by God as his own special people. They had been partakers of so many glorious events in their history. So many things that ought to have pointed them to him. Think of the glory they'd seen at Sinai. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. Moses went up on a mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Thunder and lightning and volcanoes and, 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 and heavenly trumpets louder and louder and louder with each moment uh, as they saw and stood and watched. They were part of God's covenant with Abraham. They had received the law, the very word of God. The only people on earth that could say this. It was given first to them for all to know. They were particularly blessed to have the opportunity to serve God. So many promises, so many blessings came first to this group of people. 
And of course, most especially glorious is that Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of all mankind, came from this group of people. How could such a people, Paul is thinking, how could such a people, so blessed, so brimming with opportunity to understand and know the truth of God, how could they reject it? You can see him wondering. And it was an understandable question for Paul to ask. And it's a question we ask sometimes, don't we, about people we know, people in our sphere of influence. Let me talk about you for just a moment. I mean, let's think about it. You, like the Israelites Paul referred to here, are a people of great opportunity, aren't you? Lots of opportunity. Some of you were born into Christian families. You have been prayed for. You've been dragged to church by your parents, maybe. And praise God for that, by the way. One of these days, you will look back and say, thank God my parents dragged me to church. The parents who don't are the ones that are wrong. The parents who do, thank God for them. You've been dragged to church by your parents who prayed and prayed for your soul. You've been preached over and over from the Word of God. You have heard the gospel explained. You have felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying you need to act on this. It's the truth. You are a people of great opportunity. And so some of you have not yet trusted Christ. And the question has to be, how is that true? How is it possible that you have yet rejected in light of such opportunity? Some of you have not had the privilege of a Christian home, but yet somewhere along the line, you have nonetheless had great opportunity. Have you not? Last I checked, you live in America. Do you not live in America? And in America, there's billboards on every corner. There's churches on every corner. The gospel blares on every radio, across every television set. If you have a Roku, there must be 50 different Christian channels on there. Uh, The gospel is everywhere in this country. You have had every opportunity. And somehow you're here. Somehow you're here this morning. And you have heard the gospel over and over in this place. How is it? The people who are a people of opportunity such as that. Lots of opportunity. Some still reject. I think everybody in this room can relate a little bit to the people Paul's describing. I think some of us maybe can relate to it even more. So lots of opportunity. The second thing I want us to notice is that there are limits of opportunity. Look at verse number 6. Verse number 6. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That's a key verse to understanding chapter 9, by the way. If you want to dig a little bit deeper, you've got to think about chapter 6, or verse number 6. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. This is key. A person could be a physical descendant of Abraham and still be lost. And many, probably most of the Jews would be horrified by this statement that he was making because they believe the promise of God was to all of them as physical descendants of Abraham. That's all they needed. If they were in that group, then there was nothing further that was required of them. But you dig into Paul's arguments here in this chapter, and it becomes clear that they were wrong. Abraham had other physical descendants, and they were not all children of the promise. And even in the descendants of Isaac, who was the child of promise, there were some that were included and some were not. And of course, now we're getting back into the matter of election. But still, we see it reminds us of a very simple truth. You can be in a group that has lots of opportunity. You can sit in a group like this and yet miss out because there are limits to that opportunity. I wonder, don't you, how many people will be in hell who attended church every single day of their life? How many do you suppose? I wonder how many who had the opportunity of a Christian family will find themselves in hell because they never took advantage of that opportunity. 
I wonder how many to whom the gospel was preached regularly will be lost because they listened, but they ignored its claims on their life. How many people with lots of opportunity will never act upon it? I submit there will be multiplied millions in hell who did not understand that there are limits to the opportunity. And we need to hear Paul's teaching. We need to apply it to our lives. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Just because you sit in a privileged seat, just because you're part of a privileged group, it's not enough. It's not enough. I heard a preacher preach on Judas one time, and of course you remember Judas. Judas was a member of a privileged group. He was one of 12 of the most privileged people that have ever walked the face of this earth. For three years he walked with Jesus Christ himself. He was one of the disciples. He was also the disciple who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And this preacher entitled his message, The Man Who Kissed the Door to Heaven and Went to Hell. I wonder, I wonder how many will be in that case. Paul lamented the fact there were so many of his Jewish brothers and sisters who had, in spite of all their opportunity to be saved, come right to the edge and missed out. And I believe our churches have people like that in them. I'm not thinking of anybody in particular this morning. I'm just thinking in general. But I think that there are churches, our churches are full of people who listen, who hear, who are standing right in the doorway. And do not act. And they do not receive. Oh, I would encourage you to not be one. Well, number three. Let's notice there is loss of opportunity. So there was lots of opportunity. There was a limit to the opportunity. Number three. There is loss of opportunity. Look at verse 30. Chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness? Even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. They believed that they were right with God because they were part of this group. But they also believed that they were right with God because they had the law. And they lived according to the law. They believed they were saved by keeping the law. And nothing could be further from the truth. I don't know that we need to discuss this very much at all. Paul has hammered this in the last eight chapters, hasn't he? Go back and read chapter 3. Go back and read chapter 4 if you're not yet convinced about those things. Paul's theme, the just shall live by faith. It's all throughout these eight chapters we've looked at. Nobody can live up to the demands of the law. It was given to make us help us see our sin and our lost condition, point us to Christ. But they thought they could be saved by keeping the law, and they were wrong. In that thinking. But the flaw in their thinking went beyond that, though. Notice what else he says. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. It says that they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Simply stated, here's what they did. They rejected what God said and substituted their own ideas. What's the guy on Mythbusters who said, I reject your reality and substitute my own? That's what they did. That's what they did. They rejected God's truth and tried to submit their own. That's not the way I see it. Have you ever heard anybody say that to you when you're trying to explain the gospel to them? Well, that's not the way I see it. Or, well, that's not what it means to me. You're in a Bible study where that gets tossed out there. I've been talking to somebody about the things of God. That's not the way I, that's not what it means to me. That's what these people did. It's amazing how often people want to dictate their own doctrine to God. 
And yet that's what these people did. Rather than take advantage of the opportunities they've been given to hear the gospel, to have it explained to them, act upon that opportunity by responding to it in faith and believing, people argue with God about it. That's not the way it ought to be, God. I don't like that. I have a different idea. You know, you can be amazingly sincere in what you believe and be astoundingly wrong. I often think about the poor souls who flew the planes into the towers on 9-11. These men sincerely believed that the moment they hit that tower, they were going to wake up in paradise. They sincerely believed that. And they were astoundingly wrong. If the Bible is true, and is the Bible true? Amen. Amen. Then they immediately went from the fires of the tower to the fires of hell, just like that. Sincerely believing and astoundingly wrong. You see, our little ideas, your little ideas about right and wrong, they don't matter. They don't matter. Our carefully constructed theology, it's irrelevant. It's probably ridiculous to God when you think about it. All it matters is what he has said, not what we think he ought to have said. I like the way Paul puts it here in chapter 9 and verse number 20. He says, indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? And that's what so many do. This past Wednesday, during prayer meeting, several of us gathered and uh, were praying. There was a man here, comes with Randy McKay from time to time. He's attended several times. And he was sharing a, a story. He was giving a praise and a request. He was praying for a man that he had the opportunity to witness to in the past week. And uh, he had not gotten the man's name. He says, that's just a stranger that he had met in the street. And he wanted us to pray for him. So we prayed for the stranger. But uh, after the prayer meeting, he was talking to us about it and telling us a little bit about that exchange that took place. And he said, here's, here's what the guy said. When he, when he tried to press him to, to trust Christ, the man said to him, I'm going to wait until I meet him. And then I'll decide. And that was, that was the man's response. Now, of course, God says, once that meeting takes place, it's too late. It's too late. But, but you know, that didn't matter to this man. This man thought he knew better. His idea trumped God's truth. He could dictate his doctrine to God. And somehow, in his mind, that was right. And so I wonder, what about you? What about you. Are you, in spite of all the opportunity to be saved that is and has been presented to you, are you going to let that opportunity pass by because you think you have a better idea? Because you think you know more than God? Please rethink that position. One last thing I want us to notice. One final application from these verses, and, and, and maybe it's the main one. This is the one that I, I hope maybe we'll really think about as we leave today. It's Paul's love for the lost. Look again at the very first three verses of chapter 9. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Look at chapter 10 and verse number 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now think about this. Last week, last week we learned that nothing can be against us if God is for us. Do you remember how chapter 8 ended? We learned that no one can accuse us who are justified in Christ. We learned that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
we shouted and we worshipped and we praised God and we were awestruck. And at one point we even listened to Andy Griffith, as I recall. But all of those thoughts at that end of that chapter were mind-boggling, weren't they? And they were wonderful. And we were on this huge high. What is the very next sentence that Paul speaks? I tell the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. After climbing the mountain that is chapter 8, after singing forth the hymn of triumph that is that final paragraph, we would expect him to be on a high, would we not? But instead we find him sorrow, grief. Why? And I think, it's, I think it's because when Paul considered the wonder that is salvation, it made the rejection of that truth by those he loved so much more horrifying, so much more sorrowful, so much more unbelievable. How could they reject such a message? They rejected his message, and yet Paul desperately loved his people. They were his enemies, even trying to kill him on occasion, and yet Paul loved and prayed for them. You know, up to this point, every application we've made has been to the one who has not trusted Christ. The one who needs to be saved. But I think this particular application is for us. The ones who are. The ones who are believers. What a heart for souls Paul had. Think about those words. I have great sorrow for my brothers. Do you? Do you feel genuine sorrow for the lost? I have continual grief in my heart for my brethren. I've had a little experience with grief lately. It's a very strong feeling. And many of you have had the same experience. Is that what you feel for the lost? Paul did. I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen. <laughs> you know what he's saying there? He's saying, I could wish that I'd go to hell in their place if that would let them be saved. Are you truly willing to pay any price, make any sacrifice in order to see some saved? Paul was. My heart's desire is that they may be saved. Is that yours? If we were to open up your heart today and look in there and look at your deepest desire, if it could become visible to us would it be souls? Would it be the lost? How much time in your prayer life is devoted to lost souls? Paul said, my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Is that your prayer? A couple weeks ago, we had a missionary here on Wednesday night, Sue Givens, missionary to Paraguay, and she presented her ministry to those who were here on Wednesday. And as she was sharing her work on Par- uh, 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 at Paraguay, she started to talk about praying for the lost, and she pulled out her prayer list for the lost. And it was a large piece of paper, a full-size sheet of paper that was typed. I was standing back in the sound room, and I could see from there that it was typed, single-spaced, tiny little font. There was hundreds of names on there, hundreds. And she talked about how she prayed for them, and I was so convicted by that. I don't have that many on my list, and I should. Ray Stedman told of a congregation that had dismissed its pastor. He fired him. And someone asked one of the parishioners why they had done it. And the church member said the pastor kept telling us we were going to hell. And so the guy says, well, what does the new pastor say? He said, well, he tells us we're going to hell. 
And the guy says, well, what's the difference? And the churchgoer said, well, when our first pastor said we were going to hell, he sounded like he was glad. But when our new pastor says it, he sounds like it breaks his heart. That's the heart of Paul. That's the heart of Paul for the lost. He hurt over the fact that his brothers were lost. He wept over their blind rejection of the truth. He sorrowed deeply when they turned away. He prayed desperately for their souls. Is such your heart? Jesus had a similar reaction when considering the rejection of the gospel by the Jews. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Boyce says it was the tragic contrast between the Jews' fierce unbelief and the joys of the gospel that brought tears to the eyes of both Jesus of Nazareth and the Apostle Paul. Is such your heart for the lost? Is such my heart for the lost? Wearsby said, what a man this Paul was. He was willing to stay out of heaven for the sake of the saved. We read that in Philippians. And he was willing to go to hell. For the sake of the lost.